The sermon text this morning is from Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I do know I have something on my face. Um, It wasn't shaving. Uh, I just had a little bit of skin cancer. Everybody looks at me and they're like, you got a really big bandage on your face. I'm like, I know that. (laughs) Put it there. Now that that's over with and done with, let's get on. Uh, Perhaps some of you know that probably the most famous sermon preached in America was uh, on July 8th, 1741. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, and the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a sermon given at a time of great awakening in this country to the things of God, and in this sermon he preached... uh, about the holiness of God and the anger towards sinful man. Now, in today's world, it's kind of looked at as antiquated, probably mocked a little bit. Uh, But it does raise the question that our text deals with, which is just simply this. Why is God so angry? Why is God full of wrath? You know, if you've been here at the beginning of the sermon series, You know you've met Paul. Paul is an apostle. He's a servant. He's set apart for the gospel. He is calling the nations to obedience of faith. And he's writing to these Christians now in Rome. He's in Greece, most likely. He's writing to these Christians in Rome, and he's longing to see them. He wants them to grow in faith. And that's the natural feelings that we have as Christians. We we care for one another. We want one another to grow in the faith. And he has that desire. In fact, it's a longing, he says, And he is eager, he says, to come and preach the gospel. And then if you remember last week, the gospel 16 and 17 of chapter 1 is kind of the central theme of this letter. And in this gospel, he is saying that God's power to save is revealed. That this power to save is revealed. In fact, it's the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. How can we be right with God? That's the question upon the mind of people. How do I get right with God? Well, it's the gospel. It's the power of God to save. Now, Paul doesn't just assume you know why the gospel is good news. He doesn't just assume uh, that you understand why you need the gospel. And so he begins in chapter 118 all the way through chapter 3 to describe why we need the gospel. As one man said it this way, he says, 
How can we understand how to be right with God if we don't understand how we've been wrong with God? So, so the gospel, the light of the glory of the gospel has to be understood with a backdrop of like black sin and depravity of men. And so I want to answer the question, how can we, why is God so angry? But I first want to explain the nature of God's anger, the nature of his anger, the nature of his wrath, because most churches don't touch on this. It's kind of embarrassing. It seems unworthy of God. It's toxic. It's bad for evangelism. <clears throat> we don't want to speak about this anger and wrath of God. It's a downer to people. Now, you know, there's reasons that we... In fact, some of us are even kind of agnostic on it. We're like, whatever, you know, I just don't even want to kind of talk about it. Uh, why do we struggle so much? Well, one of the struggles is that I think we equate divine anger with human anger, our anger. Our anger tends to be uneven. It tends to be irrational at times. It tends to be inconsistent. It's marked by malice. It, it has bitterness associated with revenge associated with it. And so we think, <clears throat> this can't be God's anger. We're an angry people. I mean, look at the political climate. Look at the culture. Look at your family. Look at your parenting. Look at your workplace. We have anger, and you've all been touched by it. I mean, you've been touched by the explosive kind or perhaps the freezing out kind but we all know what it is, and we struggle with it. But I want you to know that the anger of God is not like the anger of man. Not at all. You see in the text, look in 18, where he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This isn't giving us a geographical location about where the anger comes from. It's showing us that the anger of God, being from heaven, is marked by holiness, purity, love, and beauty. This is the kind of anger that God has. Uh, th that it's against, it has a target. It's against sin of unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's the target. It's not random. It's not capricious. God has a holy anger against evil. John Stott kind of said it this way. <clears throat> he says, it is a settled and perfectly righteous antagonism to evil. So that's the nature of God's anger. It's birthed out of holiness and beauty and love towards injustice and evil and things that destroy his creation. Now notice in 18 that Paul says this wrath of God is revealed. Now, for some of us, we think, okay, it's going to be revealed. There'll be a day where God will level the fields, he will right the wrongs, he will bring about a perfect justice. I think that day, I think it does speak to that day, and don't you as a Christian long for that day? I mean, don't you long for the day when all justice will be meted out? You think about the evil and the hardship and the innocent suffering, and that day is a day that we ought to long for. But that's, ex not, that's not exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying that the wrath of God is revealed. And in, in the tense that Paul wrote it, it's being revealed, even now. There is a wrathfulness of God being revealed. Now, I'm going to speak to that more next week on how it, it, the, the shortest answer would be that, that God kind of abandons humanity 
to the path of sin that they're on. That, that, that's how he's going to reveal it. And, and you kind of know this already. Uh, you know it because God has given us a conscience. Think about it for a minute. Uh, you know the reality of judgment and the wrath of God, even in your conscience. When your conscience is pricked, or when your conscience is, is tweaked, you, you say something that you know is not really true. Or you say something that, that you know you know you're kind of shading the truth a little bit. Or you're sharing a delicate morsel about somebody else that you, know, you probably shouldn't share it. You know how your conscience just moves a little bit. And that's a foretaste of God letting you know that there is, that there is a standard of holiness that we all know. The two-year-old child that looks back before taking his brother's toy, it's in us. God has baked in the DNA of men and women this awareness, just in your conscience, you know it. So the wrath of God, while it is a difficult topic to speak about, it is plain through Scripture. J.I. Packer, a, a British uh, theologian, says one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. Now, when you hear this idea, the reality and the terror of God's wrath, does that cause you struggle? I mean, it does many people. If you've ever spoken about the wrath of God, surely you've heard someone say, well, my God is a loving God. As if wrath and love cannot coexist. But wouldn't it be fair to say that does love, let me ask you, does love preclude anger? Does love preclude wrath? I mean, for someone that you love, that you cannot have any sort of righteous indignation for or about them? I mean, if there's a judge that continues to, to free and exonerate the molester and the, and the murderer, is that a loving judge? Is that a right judge? Or a father who who allows the abuse or the mistreatment of his own daughter without ever getting angry toward that? Is that a loving father? Now what we find is that wrath is a function of love. That if you truly love someone or something, that there can be wrath associated with that. Rebecca Pippert's a current writer and She's spoken to this very clearly. She says this, We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So how can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Now, if you're here today and you're looking at the Christian faith and and you, you desire to know more about it, does this offend? Does this strike you as odd? Don't you find within your own soul the capacity to be right and angry over someone or something you love? 
And can't God exercise that same experience? You know, we don't want to confuse a God of delayed wrath with a God of no wrath. The scriptures tell us here that God is wrathful, but it's born out of holiness and love and antagonism towards evil. If you're a Christian here, what do you do with this passage here? Does this apply to you? I think it does. Now, I don't think the Christian here who has come to faith in Christ, I don't think they ought to ever fear the wrath of God. You have no threat. You have no threat. Uh, But this is a helpful text for us because it helps us to cherish the gospel. It, It helps us to appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. When you think of the gospel, what we're reminded of is that God has sent a son in flesh like us, born of a woman, born under the law, and he has, he has brought about on the Son our sin and our shame and our guilt. This is the great substitution, that Jesus Christ bore our sin. He literally bore the curse of our sin and the wrath of God associated with it. So he bore the very wrath of God for our sin that we might experience the rightness of God through faith in him. That's the nature of the gospel. And Jesus says it, No uncertain terms, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we ought to be people who are cherishing the gospel. Do you think about the gospel often? Do you consider, when you look at your own lives and you confess your own sins, are you drawn to the gospel and are you thankful? Do you cherish it? I mean, those who cherish the gospel are really being saved by it. Uh, They're really being saved. They're being sanctified. They're being changed. As we look at this warning of wrath, uh, all of a sudden, shouldn't the affections of our heart develop? Thankful that he saved me. Thankful to God that he has given one to save me, to deliver us. So that's kind of the heartbeat here. We ought to cherish the gospel when you read a passage like this. Even though you won't come under the wrath, it can, draw our, it can draw our minds and hearts. But not just that, it can make us wise. It can really make us wise to sin. You know, we so easily get duped. And we're going to see this next week. We so easily get caught off guard, confused about the nature of sin, thinking we have it kind of taken care of. And there we are, falling in it again, often deeper than we ever imagined. And yet this text is a warning to us. It's a warning to all of us here uh, that we want to be wise as to the nature of this life and the temptations that we face. You know, the writer of Hebrews is, the Hebrews is really just a sermon being preached. And in chapter 3, he's warning uh, the listening audience about the kind of the danger of sin. And he says this, he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A passage like this in Romans is a warning to us. We need each other. You cannot grow in sanctifying graces alone. And that's why the writer is saying, exhort one another, right? We need one another. This is a church-wide event here to help develop relationships where we can speak to and help one another not be hardened by sin. He says, exhort one another every day. That seems extreme to me. Every day? I think he's just teaching us a consistency, a regularity about how often we 
ought to be doing this. That every day we're under threat. You know, John Owen, the great British theologian of the 17th century, kill sinner, it's killing you, one or the other. It's happening every day. It's not sleeping. It doesn't sleep. It's looking for you. And so we have to exhort one another every day. Uh, so, so that's some of the lessons that the Christian can have when you look at a text like this. So in verse 18, we simply see this. What is the nature of God's anger? It's born out of his holiness and love. It's directed to ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it's, it's good medicine for us to take, even as Christians. Okay, so, so why is he so angry, though? I want to get back to the question. Why is he angry? What are the reasons for his anger? And this is where I want you to look with me at the second half of 18. There's three reasons in this text that God is angry at his creation. And since you and I are part of it, it probably serves us well to, to hear it well. So in 18, look at the end of 18. He talks about the wrath of God being uh, revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. So it's the suppression of this truth that God is angry. angry. God is angry at creation because we suppress the truth. When I say suppress, I mean that's what you do when you want to fight a cough. It's, it's coming up. You take medicine. It doesn't eliminate the cough, but you're trying to suppress it. You're trying, you're trying to keep something down that wants to make itself known. And he is angry that we're suppressing the truth. But the question is the truth of what? What are we suppressing? What does every single human being suppress the truth of? Well, look with me at 19 and 20. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. So he's saying this, that we suppress the truth of God's creation as giving testimony to the existence of God. God has made this world in a way that is to reveal himself to us and his glory. And God is angry that we suppress the truth of his transcendent glory. God's angry that we, we try to move God out of the way by creating him as a non-reality, coming up with other ideas about how everything got here. God is angry at being moved off the stage of his own creation in the minds of his own creation. It's God who initiated revealing himself. He's an unknown God making himself knowable. He's an invisible God making himself visible. Everything he's made, you can see it, you can discern it, you can perceive it. I mean, you can look at a telescope and see the vastness of creation. How did it all get here? You can look at it through a microscope and see the intricate details of DNA. How did it all get here? You know, this is what theologians call general revelation, where God is revealing himself in a general way. That means to all people, not to a select tribe, not to a select people group, but to all people. And he reveals himself in a way uh, that is sufficient in that we know him. And he's doing it on a repeated basis. You see the sun every day. You see the seasons come and go constantly. There's a witness for God's creative power given to you. This is really what David picks up in Psalm 19 when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork. He says, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. God's saying, I'm revealing myself. <clears throat> that you all know the existence of God. You know, once I was in Baltimore in jail as a minister. <laughs> and I was in the solitary confinement wing and it was the oldest prison in Baltimore. It was built in the mid-19th century. It was huge. It was old. It was really a formidable place. And we'd go in there, and this is where men were locked up in cells maybe that wide, maybe seven, eight feet long. And uh, it was exposed. You know, the windows open. It was, it was a pretty, pretty hard place. And I'd go from cell to cell and ask people if they wanted to speak about spiritual conversations. This is way back in the day. And I remember asking, this one young man was in there, and I started talking to him, and, uh, and I just said, do you believe in God? And his answer was so fast, it was so immediate, it was so clear, it almost shocked me. He goes, of course. Now, you know, you, you wonder if guys are in prison, you know, you, you wonder, do they really know God? Of course they believe in God. You see it all around you, don't you? And aren't there trees out there? Aren't there stars hanging out there? Don't you see all that stuff in an obvious? It's a very interesting conversation. Of course, I didn't even know what general revelation was when I was in jail. I hadn't, just a CPA, hadn't gone to school, didn't know any of these terminologies. But so quick, he knew it. You know, what it reminds us is that it is obvious to all. And, and this instructs us that unbelief, unbelief is not evidential. In other words, unbelief isn't based upon a lack of evidence. Unbelief is moral. This is what he means by the suppression of truth. We don't want to believe in God. We don't want to believe in God because it affects the way that we live. You know, Oskinnis is a contemporary British theologian, and he wrote these words. He says, Unbelief abuses truth through a deliberate act of suppression. Unbelief seizes truth, grasps it roughly, silences its voice, twists it away from God's intended purpose. It rests it towards its own end and its own agenda. He says, when we are true, while we may be truth seekers, we are also truth twisters. That we may be adjusted by truth, but we often adjust truth to our own ends. That we don't want to know God. You know, sometimes you see the philosophers, Thomas Nagel is an eminent philosopher, and they'll be honest. They're not Christian, and they'll be honest sometimes about, about really speaking to the nature of their philosophy. And here's what he wrote. He says, I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in a God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, he's honest, which I can, I'm thankful for. We don't want to believe in a God because it will cross with our life. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, college students stop believing in God when they start sleeping with their girlfriend. When my faith intersects my desire for life, that's when all of a sudden I begin to suppress the truth. 
But we're forced to look at this creation, and if you don't believe in a God, then you've got to come up with some explanation as to why it's all out there. Now, you, you can go with it just happened. It, you know, philosophically, it is absolutely untenable to think that something can come from nothing. So, so that, everybody agrees with that. But even if you want to say, well, I just think it happened by chance. Well, as one non-Christian, non-Christian scientist said, if you want to believe that this all came from just chance, then you also want to believe that a tornado can go through a junkyard and assemble a Boeing 747. You have the same likelihood of both happening at the same time. The sad is the student of creation that really wants to study creation, and yet they study it wrongly. Creation is to be studied. This world is to be enjoyed as a means to see God. Oftentimes we come to creation like a, a glassmaker comes to a display window. The glassmaker, he looks at the type of glass and the thickness of it and the distortion of it and the frame around it, how big it is. And he forgets that it's a display window. It's just to look through to that which is behind it. We don't want to look at creation and miss God in the midst of this. And that's what he's saying here, that God's angry because we're missing his glory and our joy because we're suppressing the truth of God, thinking we can create a life for ourselves better than the one he intends for us. Uh, but, but secondly, he's angry over our rejection, not just our suppression, but our rejection. Look in 21 with me. He says, for although they knew God, <clears throat> although they knew God, uh, they did not honor God as God, and they did not give thanks to God. Um, this is really important. They knew God. So again, Paul's building on this idea that we do know there is a God, but we don't honor him. We don't give him glory. And we're, we're ungrateful. You know, although he has provided all things, he's given you all the gifts, he has sustained you, he's numbered your days, we don't even recognize him as a main player in our life. We'd at least give him respect over his power, but we treat him as a non-reality. We're quick to talk about our accomplishments and our achievements, and we're quick to talk about ourselves, and, and we're so quick to boast in who we are. And we never give thanks to him. This is why a thanklessness is really godlessness. It's a godlessness. Do you see the darkness of ingratitude? I mean, I mean don't you find just incredibly distasteful when a child who has been given so much, grows up absolutely entitled and ungrateful for what they've been given. And yet, do we not often see that within our own souls towards God? I mean, proud and arrogant people tend not to be thankful people. Uh, gratitude honors God. What is the reflex on your soul? How quick do you respond with thankfulness? when grace or kindness or mercy or something good comes into your life, how quick do you thank God for who he is and what he's done for you? When you look at your family, when you look at your friends, when you look at your life, how quick are you to just attribute that to God? Or is it quickly attributed to yourself or luck or coincidence? Where is God in your life in that? Because God is angry at ingratitude. The first verse really in the Bible makes it very clear. In the beginning, God. So it's all due to him. It's all due to him. 
Paul asked the Corinthian church, he says, what do you have that you haven't received, and why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? It's kind of a, a clear correction in their attitude. So, so God is angry at the suppression of truth, the rejection of God, but also look in 22 and 23, he's angry at the, uh, at the inversion of his creational design. You know, in 22 and 23, and we'll talk about this more in more detail next week, but in 22 and 23 it says, although they knew, excuse me, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. So Paul's saying this, that God is angry when his creation will make a false substitution. We take the immortal, the glory of the immortal God, and we move it to the side, and we take images of mortal, temporal, fallen man, and we move it to the center. This is simply what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry isn't simply worshiping a stone statue in the field. Idolatry is applying ultimate value and worth in anything beside God. It's exchanging something of greater value for something of lesser value. And this idolatry is seen here in the exchanging of God and remember now, they knew God, it says. For although they knew God, they, they became full. So they knew him. They're making the choice. That's the nature of idolatry. Is there's a downward spiral. You can't even see it when it says they exchanged the immortal God for the images of mortal man, and then it moves to birds and animals, and then to creeping things. There's a downward spiral. For those who say that religion has evolved, like from paganism to, to polytheism to to monotheism, it's not true. Religion hasn't evolved. Religion has devolved. It hasn't ascended. It's descended downward. You know, because it says they knew God, but they chose away from him. And now they're going to other gods. R.C. Sproul passed away just recently, a great theologian, really a, a wonderful man, speaker of the truth, has helped countless. He says this, According to Paul, religion is not the fruit of a zealous pursuit of God, but the result of passionate flight from God. The glory of God is exchanged for an idol. The idol stands as a monument, not to religious fervor, but to the flight of man from his initial encounter with the glory of God. We don't want God. We want what we see. We want what we can have. It's this downward. Remember now that, that failing to believe in God only leads to idolatry. It doesn't lead to atheism. Everybody's worshiping something. There is no pure atheist. They're worshiping something. It may be this life, it may be their philosophy, it may be their marriage, it may be their money, their name, whatever. They have exchanged the glory of God, not for no God, but for just a different God. And, and, and that's what he's saying. It leads to foolishness. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You would think me a fool if I run back into a sinking ship to retrieve my wallet and not my wife. And yet, is that not the same exchange? We, we take something of lesser value in place of something of greater value? When you look at this text, you see clearly the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness. Again, we'll, we'll pull that apart a little bit more next week. And his wrath is over our suppression of the truth, our rejection of him as God, and 
our inversion of this creational design. That we're taking things that were not meant. They were meant to lead us to see the beauty of God, but not to replace the glory of God. And so when you look at this passage, it's small, it's brief, but think about some of the truths that jump off the page. First, everybody knows God. Everybody has some working knowledge of God. Every, there is no innocent person who's going to be able to stand before God and say, you know what, if I only would have known, if I would have known, it would have been different. Everybody knows God, and thus Paul says, they are without excuse. They cannot use an excuse, I didn't know you. Because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen. So there are no innocents in the sense of the recognizing of God. But it also shows us that not only are all people, that means we in here have been there, but so all of them. All the people that are not, they, they may be religious, they may not be religious. The reality of it is they know there's a God. And then secondly, what jumps off the page to me is that all people are guilty before God. We are all guilty. We're guilty of suppressing the truth. We're guilty of rejection of God. We're, we've been guilty, at least at one point, uh, guilty of inversion. We still struggle with that. There's a guilt, but what I want you to see is that sin in the Bible, it is a caricature, I think it's a false statement, to say that sin in the Bible is simply you broke some of the rules. Because what happens is our eyes get down to what rules do we keep? That's not sin in the Bible. Sin in the Bible is this suppression against God. It's a personal sin against God. It isn't a code of ethics that has been crossed. It is the creator of the universe that we have not worshipped and that we have inverted his design. That's the nature of sin here, that our hearts love self-glory. And so we don't want to believe in him. So all are without excuse, all are guilty. And this was what makes the gospel so beautiful. And this is Paul's line of argumentation, that now all are offered the hope of the gospel. This is why we see in chapter 1, he jumps from 16 and 17, the gospel, and then from 118 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to talk about the brokenness of men and women, both Jew and Gentile, all people. In fact, he sums it all up in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All do. Men, women, tribe, tongue, nation, all fall short. But here's the hope that we have in the gospel. And this is where Paul's going to lead us. In the rest of that verse, we read this. <clears throat> we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God sees this is the dilemma of man and woman, and I'm putting forth my son as a means of hope to those who are in the darkness of sin and destruction. That's the story of the Bible. He says it just the same way, and a couple chapters later, in Romans 5, 8, he says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ saves from the wrath of God. The gospel delivers us and removes us from the very wrath of God. That's the hope that we have. Now, if you're here and you're 
Again, you're just pursuing the faith. You know, to do nothing is to remove all solutions. To consider this, to admit this as a possibility, at least opens up solutions to you. You know, to the non-Christian, what this text is saying, in, in hard language, no doubt, but true language, uh, that, that the non-Christian stands under the wrath of God. That you are, in a way, in the hands of an angry God. But you're invited, as one author said, into the arms of a crucified Savior. The hope of the gospel is for you. Placing your faith in Christ draws you from the wrath of God into forgiveness and adoption of God. Now, for the Christian here, this comes upon us with a weight, a weight of responsibility. I want it to be a proper weight of responsibility. I think all of us would assess the doctor who did not correct a patient's wrong self-diagnosis if the doctor just said, well, they're happy with the way they are, you know, and not say anything to their misdiagnosis. We would probably consider him having failed at a fundamental responsibility that he has as a doctor. Now, we have loved ones, we have family, we have people that are close. If this is true, it's all premised, if this is true, there's a sense of privilege that we have to talk to our friends and our family about the nature of God and his holiness and his wrath. Now, now we want to do this delicately, not for manipulative purposes, but to recognize that, you know, to bring kind of information, sometimes information is best received incrementally, but, but we want to engage those that we love with the truth of the gospel that it does deliver from wrath. And this is the heaviness of the message, that we know this. You can't save anyone, and you can't convince anyone, but you can speak to them. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He's a British preacher in the 19th century. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with my arms wrapped around. And if they perish, let them perish with my arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them. So we have a great God who's holy and just and righteous. And he is angry over our suppression, our rejection, and our inversion of all that he has given to us. Let's ask God for grace to be bold in our gospel witness, to be gentle and to be kind and to be truthful, but that we might be bold in our witness to those that God has brought to us, that, that we might speak to them with gentleness and love and sadness over the nature of wrath, but the rightness of wrath. Because in the cross, and we sang it, justice has been revealed in what we're about to celebrate. Let me pray for us and then we'll prepare hearts for the table.